Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain a leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Today I want to talk about uh, innovation in supply, or rather, perhaps innovation in the lack of supply. You know, we all start out in ministry and, and we have vision. Uh, sadly, sometimes that vision is what the guy down the street is doing. We think that that's from God and we have to kind of go through a little time of not you know, God maybe not providing what we thought he was going to provide just to show us that we're not doing the thing that he really wanted us to do. But what about when it really is real? I mean, you know that God called you and you know that you called you to that place and you know what it is that he called you to do. And then there just doesn't seem to be enough to uh, meet the need, carry the rent, do whatever it is that you have to do. You know, what do you do in that situation? Because a lot of times we find ourselves there and we find ourselves sometimes doubting God. can remember a time in my life where we had started the church. We're about three months in. We'd flat out run out. So the church that we had left had taken an offering, given us about $700 to get started. That's not a lot of money, but in those days, it was more than it would be today. Uh, just to give you an idea, there was my wife and I, our infant son, and my wife's teenage brother all living in one place. So we had a three-bedroom apartment about two miles away from the beach in Manhattan Beach, California. And our rent was $225 a month. So $700 was pretty significant. The $2,000 that my wife and I had saved as a down payment and could actually buy a two-bedroom house in the place that we came from for $24,000. So just to you know give you an idea of where money was at that time, but all the money had run out. That's 700 from the church, the 2000 that we had. This is a Monday. We've gone to the bank in the morning. We've emptied out the savings account, closed it, put all the money in checking. My wife had already written checks for the bills. We were down to zilch. I mean, we had nothing on the way home. We, the pocket money we had, we stopped at a at an old ice cream shop and were able to buy ice cream cones for our kids, but nothing for us. And I'm laying on the bed. It's maybe 6 p.m. I got a meeting coming to my house at a bunch of people, volunteers coming at 7. And I'm thinking this is pretty much the end of the church. I'm going to really have to tell these people that uh, for sure the end is in sight. They need to be warned. As I'm laying there, I've, I've had my dinner. I'm, I'm depressed as I'll get out, actually kind of crying tears. And felt like the Lord spoke to me. You know, the, the option that I had was I was going to move back to Oregon take my family and move us into my father's basement and go get a job selling used cars. I'm in a denomination where it's all about being a vocational pastor, and I had failed at that. I was just done, and the Lord spoke to me. And he just spoke through Scripture, as he often does, as he usually does. And But he personalized it, and I heard this voice. It was like a person sort of behind me on the bed, whispering in my right ear, and I know that anybody else in the room wouldn't have heard an audible voice, and I didn't hear one, but that's what it seemed like. And the voice said, I've taught you to a base, and I'm going to teach you to abound. Now, the cool thing is that two days later, on a, on Wednesday, it rained money. I mean, three different checks from two, three different places that we had not anticipated at all. And so I'm very convinced this was a word from the Lord. And things began to change from there financially. But here I am feeling sorry for myself because God has not supplied. And flat out, he has not supplied. That's the truth. 
And then he speaks to me and, and says, I've taught you something through the lack of supply. And, you know, that's a big one. I, I, God teaches us by holding back what he's promised us from time to time. And as I've grown older and had a lot of years under my belt, a lot of experience, one, one of the things that I've learned is that Jesus is the ultimate creator. He created the universe. And we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We need to become more creative than we are. And so this whole idea of innovation and supply sometimes has to do with a perceived lack of supply. And, you know, just to kind of get this started, Paul says in Philippians, that same passage of Scripture that the Lord was speaking to my heart, that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's got whatever it takes, whatever it is that we need. And if he's withholding something, then from heaven's viewpoint, he's met our needs. And that, you know, is kind of a revelation because sometimes I have an idea of of how I think that God is supposed to meet my needs. And then he does it a little differently. And then it's time for me to begin to think a little differently. You know, let's go to Jesus here. In John chapter 15, uh, Jesus says some pretty astounding things. And and I'm, I'm just kind of pulling some stuff out of the first few verses of John 15. First, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it will be done for you. That is a big one. And, you know, I'm I'm not a prosperity doctrine guy, but there's something that those guys have that I've lost a long time ago in terms of I'm willing to just throw out baby with a bathwater in terms of faith sometimes. It actually says here what you desire. Ask what you desire. Uh, that's a pretty big one. But again, sometimes what I desire isn't the thing that I think I desire. It's, you know, I, I see something in front of my face, but there's something at a deeper level that I really need or that I, you know, the, the real thing that would satisfy my desires isn't going to come through the first thing that, that, you know, that I might want to buy from Amazon. And so I need to go from there. He goes on in verse eight and he says, uh, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So his plan is for you and I to bear much fruit where we are, where we're planted. In verse 11, he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when it's cold outside and it's winter and all the grass and the trees are brown and, you know, I'm all vision and no money. I'm feeling overdriven personally, just my use of time and I don't have enough leaders in the church. It's pretty hard to have a lot of joy in my life. And and, and then he goes on and says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. That's very reassuring because, you know, I did not want to be a pastor. I wanted to be an architect and uh, God interrupted my plans. Actually, when I was very, very young, spoke to me and I fought it for years and years. But I know that I've been called. I know that I'm a draftee. I know that I just sort of want to stand up and march and do what I'm told. I don't have any great aspirations in terms of uh, of this being my ministry. It's really his ministry. It's his deal, which takes a lot of pressure off me. But these are pretty bold promises. And the last one is that um, he, he, he called us so that our fruit would remain. And then he says, and whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it. Now, that's very, very big blanket statement. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. 
You know, I can remember a time in my life, about 2002, and my wife had breast cancer, and it was pretty rugged. It was an aggressive cancer, and they had to go at it aggressively. And so I was accompanying her to radiation therapy and getting up really early in the morning. And I'm a nine-hour night sleeper, at least was when I was younger. And my sleep patterns were being disrupted. My whole life was being disrupted. And on top of that, we had um, done really well in real estate investment. We kind of were at the edge of the baby boom. And so whatever we bought, you know, the price went up after we bought it. And we had done really well with that. And then we decided to get out of real estate in about the year 2000 and put everything in the stock market. And uh, we found an investment professional and, you know, guy with really good credentials. And he lost 45% of whatever we owned, uh, our life savings inside of one year. And so in 2002, I'm in the process of trying to get that back. I'm going nuts. I get up early in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. When the stock market opens in New York, I make a trade. I try to go back to sleep. Uh, everything is just not working for me. And, 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 I, and I started to panic. I started to really be fearful. Uh, we had moved into a new church facility that we had built, and uh, all of a sudden the bills were kind of catching up with us. And at, at one point, I began to just doubt the Lord. Does God even care about any of this? Does he care about me? And I, I wrote about this. I, I wrote a book called Defeating Anxiety because I ended up seeing a shrink. I had to get some help. And uh, by the way, I don't think it's any kind of shame to go see a shrink. I don't think there's any shame in, in medication. That's what I wrote. why I wrote the book because so many leaders and pastors uh, are, are hiding it, that they need help. And I needed help. But when I begin to get help and, and get things sorted out, they put me on some medicine, and it just helped me to begin to think a little straighter. I, I remember kind of raging against God one day and, and just, you know, in prayer, just arguing, why didn't you do this, and why did this happen, and why didn't... And again, I felt like the Lord spoke, and, and he said, when did I ever fail to meet your need? And I raised my hand with my finger pointed toward the heaven to start going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and I couldn't think of anything. And I began to realize there's never been a time in life that ultimately God hasn't my need. Now, sometimes meeting my need, it means that I'm going to have to look at life a little differently than I've looked at it previously. I'm going to have to look at what God has supplied and start to think, maybe he's given me what I need and I just need to do something different with what it is that he's given to me. You know, in Romans chapter 8, it says we know that in all things God works for the good to those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So there are you and I, called according to his purpose. And and here God's saying he's working for good in cancer. He's working for good in stock market failure. He's working for good in another pastor who's in competition with everything that I do, and I can't escape this thing. Just And, and God's working for my good. He's working for, for good in a, a, a building that all of a sudden we're caught up in the finances, the whole thing. And so, I, you know, I, I, again, I start thinking, well, it, what's the good? And the next verse tells us that he's trying to get us to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, that probably has to do with morality, humility, character, uh, grace, all of those things. But one of the things about Jesus that I want to point out here is that he is the creator and that we need to be creative people. And sometimes when the Lord withholds supply, he's actually supplying a different way. And he's trying to lead us into something that um, is is better than what we could anticipate. You know, I 
when I was a young, young pastor, the church exploded with growth. And, you know, we had to ask people to sit on the floor, sit outside and look in the windows on folding chairs. We had a parking lot that would hold seven cars and we were stacking close to 20 cars by parking on the lawn and parking behind the building, you know, valet parking the cars for church. And during worship, as the building would fill up, we'd ask if you if you got jeans on, come sit on the floor on the platform and sit on the floor in the aisles. The fire marshal would have had a heart attack if he would have walked in that building. But, you know, word gets around that you know, this church is so full of people that people are sitting on the floor and looking in the windows. And, and what we were crying and complaining about actually turned out to be a blessing. It, it caused people to get more excited about the gospel and more excited about what was going on. And then we were able to break out of that building by renting a community center down the street, but we didn't have space for kids. Uh, we actually turned a tin lawn shed into an illegal classroom for second grade boys or something like that. We bought an old house and uh, we were able to use the upstairs of the house for our children's church. We were able to use the, the garage for children's church. All these things just kind of led to this excitement inside of our church. And then we finally got the building that we'd been praying for for years and we renovated it ourselves and we got all over the news. We, I mean, NBC came out and did a big special that went across the nation about you know, a church in a bowling alley and a bunch of hippies and surfers and all that. And and then we found ourselves a wreck. We had grown from 400 people to 800 people literally in one week. Six weeks later, we're down to about 600 people and shrinking pretty quickly. And we bring a guy in to do some teaching on what makes a healthy church. And one of the things he talked about was small group experience, something that we had enjoyed in the beginning during the, the height of the so-called Jesus movement. But We'd lost it. And so we, we very quick went and got something started. We uh, pulled together seven houses and we went from, uh, I think, 85 people showing up on a midweek prayer deal that we were doing. We had 365 people try to get into seven large houses in Southern California in one week. We had neighbors upset. We had police upset. We had the newspaper upset. But actually, those are kind of good things because they fan the fires of of excitement and enthusiasm for the Lord and for vision and for what he's doing in the church. And But, but what really came out of that is we, we, we very quickly doubled the number of home groups that we had, and we doubled it again, and then we were doing okay. But we, we learned to ask these three questions that we had, we, we build everything we do in, in training leaders. We do this around a book. In our home groups, we do this around whatever the pastor said last week. We asked these three questions. What did the Holy Spirit say to you while that was going on? In other words, while the pastor was talking, what was the Holy Spirit saying? Maybe through the pastor. So we're asking people not to tell us what they think of what the pastor said or what it meant, what the pastor said. But what did the Spirit say to you? Put your life on the table. And then what are you going to do about it? Again, you're putting your life on the table. You're inviting your friends to hold you accountable. And, and then the third question that we always ask is, how can we alongside and help? And, and it starts to build unity in the body. Spiritual gifts come out. And these three questions have been foundational to our discipleship process in the church, but they're foundational to, as we apply them to books that we read, to the way that we train guys who are in the process of pastoring people to learn to be potential church planters. And so our lack, our, our lack of unity, our lack of understanding of who we were, our lack of identity, all of that bore fruit. And so we think that sometimes this lack business is a good deal. You know, fast forward to Hawaii. We thought we had rented a space. We had a fine space. We had, In that church, we had a lot of money to back us going in. And everything that we owned was on the 
on the ship in the container, and we got word they're not going to rent to you. And so, again, we flew to Hawaii in a hurry. We, we just tried to arrange something. Nobody even talked to us. Buildings that we eventually would use for church were not available at that time. So we ended up starting church. It was against the law. We didn't permit. You couldn't get a permit to start a church on the beach. We got a cop coming through every week and scaring us to death while we're pretending to have a picnic with me standing up there with a Bible in my hands. And... Um, and, and yet again, the, the kind of the mystery of that and the underground nature of that fanned the fires of vision. We stood up there and told these people, we're going to reach 10,000 people inside of 10 years, and there's no way that I'm going to ever pastor 10,000. Uh, some of you guys are going to have to become pastors. And oh, by the way, you and me together, we're not going to reach 10,000. There's guys out there dealing drugs today that are going to end up being pastors, and you will disciple them. And my gosh, this, this lack of supply turned into wonderful, wonderful supply and a wonderful blessing. What it did was it contributed to a sort of a can-do a- attitude and atmosphere in everything that we did as a church and as church as as we went forward, and a super huge blessing from the Lord. You know, as I think about innovation, I think about our, our values drive our narrative, and our narratives drive our behaviors. You know, what's going to happen is going to come out of the stories that I tell, and hopefully the stories that you're telling are coming out of real basic values that are New Testament values. But one of the values that I have is is thankfulness. I've learned to be thankful for what the Lord has given me. And when I get up and, and I brag about how God has done good things with little, or good things without, or good things through people who didn't seem adequately trained, I get more of whatever it was that I'm bragging about, whatever it is that I'm uh, verbally praising God for by including it in my sermons and the stories that I tell, and, and, and honoring the people who are doing things very much with very little. You know, we have a, the last church that I pastored had a huge ministry going on in Kenya where people from our church were going over there to do an eyeglass clinic every year. They led a lot of people to the Lord, but they hooked up with a pastor and they taught him, you know, those three questions I just talked about and how we did the small groups. They taught him how to do that and how to use that as a tool for planting churches. And within just a few years, they saw like four or five churches get planted very good thing with no input from me other than what we're doing on a daily basis in our church. I remember a woman in our church and she had a vision for the poor. We were building church building. She and her husband hauled up a couple of shipping containers and they opened up a, a free clothing store. We all donated clothes. They would give it away free. It turned into a bus because there were people who came up and just ripped it off and took it to the swap meet and sold the stuff. We had to close that down. But this lady, one thing led to another, and she got involved, again, with just no resources. She just got herself involved in a government-funded housing project for people who are just almost homeless, very, very poor people. And she started going to the food bank, and she distributed. She started making friends with people. Uh, one thing leads to another. She's doing a little craft time with little kids. Next thing you know, she's got a, a little church going on. And, you know, we we ran that one into the ground, man. We talked about that every week. And, and we ended up having a sidewalk church planted among homeless people. We had a church planted on another island with a guy. You know, we'd fly him over there once a month because a guy he led to the Lord was a, just a natural evangelist and knew nothing about the New Testament. And so he needed this guy to, you know, kind of play apostle and, and he would play pastor and our church funded. And so as we do these things, you know, you can do a lot without a lot. I just ran into a church in Texas and uh, they have huge vision for like 20, 30 percent of the people in America live in rural towns in America. In most of what we think of in church 
growth and, and even church multiplication has to do with the city. And these guys are going into places and they don't have a whole lot, but they use what they have to build relations now that they're building churches. The story goes on and on and on. And so I think sometimes when you're looking at your life and looking at what you expect from God and it's not coming through the way that you thought it was supposed to come through, it's really just the Lord kind of telling you that you need to um, back off, get your eyes off of yourself and onto him and see what it is that he's already supplied and, and then how you can implement his plan, not your plan, but how you can implement his plan with his supply. Paul in Acts chapter 20 says, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may just finish the course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, all I want to do is get the message out. I'm not putting a lot of strings on it. I, I don't even care about my own life. I just want to do what Jesus asked me to do. You know, I, I think about my life and perhaps your life, and sometimes I flat out read too many books about how to do the ministry better or how to do leadership better. And I, I find that I'm a little confused between what is my vision for this deal and what is his vision. And one of the things that's happened in my life, and I would recommend it to you, is rather than reading books about church leadership or even books about church multiplication, I, I've learned to read books about economics and about history. And I like to read biographies of you know, people that have done important things. And Winston Churchill is one of my great life heroes. So is Franklin Roosevelt. I, I just look at different people and want to learn what they knew and, and how they did it and what God did in their life. And I don't get it from the perspective of, you know, the, the guy who's got this wonderful ministry of 20,000 people coming to it, just wrote a book, and I'm going to get to do what he's doing. Uh, it, it gives me a little bit better opportunity to come back and just compare the call of God in my life, how things work in the world, and then let me just go to the feet of Jesus and go, I don't have very much to offer here. I know you do. I really didn't want to get into this in the first place. I know you called me. So how are we going to get it done the way that you want it done with what you have supplied and acknowledging what you have not supplied and acknowledging the fact that maybe, Lord, you intentionally didn't supply it because it's for my good and you're shaping me to become the creative person that I'm supposed to be as I'm made into the age of Jesus. You know, back to Jesus. He said our joy would be full. Our joy would be full. And, you know, joy to me means the perfect fulfillment of that which for which I was created. You know, what did God make Ralph more for? If I can see that accomplished in the time that I've got on this earth, including the limited time that I have left in my old age, I'm a happy camper. I don't need a whole lot of material things. I don't need a whole lot of things of, that somebody else has. I don't need a whole lot of things that maybe I outlined in an annual vision statement or something like that. I just need to be what Jesus has called me to be, and I need to do what he's called me to do. And, you know, sometimes as, as he wields his paintbrush, he's painting voids into my life because he wants to teach me something in the void, and perhaps he's, paint, he's painted a void into your life because he wants to teach you something. And I hope this is a blessing to you, and uh, just wish you the best. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.